It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 318 for November 11th, 2012. This week, passwords are all that stand between you and thieves, so let's figure out how to create some strong passwords. How to be your own domain. This is information you need when you tire of having an AOL or Gmail address. Have you turned 64 yet? No, I mean like 64-bit computing. And in short circuits, there's not much to say about electronics during the recent election, but things could be better. Disk drive prices continue to dive, and so does the price of memory. And a judge tosses Apple's suit against Google out onto the street. How many messages do you receive every week that claim to be from people you know and may come from their computers, but contain either spam messages or malware? It's a rare week when I receive no messages like this. In some cases, people have been victimized more than once. That's because they continue to use easy-to-guess passwords like ABC123 or Let Me In or even the word password. As more of us deal with online businesses and as more of us store data online, passwords become increasingly important. It's not hard to devise secure passwords. Note the plural. Those who use the same password for everything are simply asking for trouble. But you don't need to create a unique password for every account you have. After all, some accounts are more important than others. I create three categories. Level 1. If you engage in online banking or you store any financial data online, these accounts should have strong passwords, and each financial institution or company that you have an account with should have a unique password. Ideally, your username should be difficult to associate with your name, too. In other words, instead of using bblin as a username, I might choose treehugger3458. Treehugger3458? Okay, so maybe that's a term I'll remember, and maybe that's my street address when I was 10. Should someone find a way to obtain the username and password for one critical account, treehugger3458, well, you want to avoid giving the crook access to all of your other critical accounts, so consider this practice to be kind of a firewall of sorts. Next is level 2. That's between the sites that contain critical information and the sites that contain nothing of value to thieves. Between those are sites that need to maintain confidentiality, but don't require the same level of protection afforded your critical sites. These might be subscription sites for publications. If you have a New York Times subscription, you might create a password such as NYTPine93475 Fennel. NYT would be unique to this password, but you'd use the Pine93475 Fennel part for dozens of publications. TI Pine93475 Fennel for Time Magazine. NR Pine93475 Fennel for The National Review. 
and TN Pine 93-475 fennel for the nation. In this case, pine would be your favorite kind of tree. 93-475 is your zip code, and fennel is your preferred spice. So all you need to remember is the prefix, which is clearly determined from the name of the publication, and the root part of the password, pine 93-475 fennel. Then you have level 3. These are miscellaneous accounts that, if compromised, would not expose any critical information. These can share usernames and passwords, even though technically that isn't the best practice. But if you don't want to remember dozens of usernames and passwords, it's an acceptable practice for online discussion sites, manufacturer support sites, and blog sites that require registration. It's still not a good idea, though, because someone can impersonate you if they have your credentials. There is a better way to handle the problem of remembering hundreds of usernames and passwords, and I'll get to that in a moment. Let me note here that I do not use treehugger, or any variation of that term in any ID. I have never lived at 3458 or any combination of those numbers on any street. I have never even visited zip code 93475, which turns out to be Oceano, California. Pine trees, although I consider them to be fine plants, are probably not my favorites. And I don't particularly care for fennel. So if you're trying to crack my passwords, those are not very good places to start. A good password should not, no, a good password cannot be found in a dictionary. That's a common precaution, but it seems that many people misunderstand the meaning of this recommendation. You shouldn't use a password such as grapefruit because any dictionary word simplifies the cracker's task. But you could use grape 7329 fruit, just break the word and insert a number in the middle. Better still, grape with an at sign in the place of the A, 7329 fruit, with a capital I in fruit, just replacing some letters with symbols and some random capitalization make a big difference. Another way to create a strong password is to use a phrase. Some sites now allow long passwords, and anything over about 15 characters is extraordinarily difficult to crack. So let's say you were a fan of the doors. Riders on the storm, into this house were born. Well, that's a pretty good password. You could swap out some of the letters for numbers and symbols and make it even stronger. Writers with a 1 in place of the I. On is okay as it is. The with a plus sign instead of the T. Storm with a 0 in place of the O. In 2. All right, leave that alone. This with a plus sign in place of the T again. House with a 0 instead of the O. And we're born. Make sure you capitalize some of the letters. But the best passwords are long and completely random. Many programs exist to create these kinds of passwords. KeyPass, for example, allows you to specify the length of the password and which kinds of characters will be used. You can then create a list of passwords that you can use as needed. The real challenge, though, is remembering all those passwords. In addition to creating passwords, KeyPass can store them securely on your computer. It's tempting and easy to create an Excel spreadsheet or a text file or a Word document with all your usernames and passwords. Trouble is that when you do that, you make them available to any malware that finds its way onto your computer. And yes, I know you can password protect a Word document or an Excel document. 
Forget it. It's not worth the trouble. KeePass keeps the passwords on your computer, but the file is encrypted so that even if a cyber thug gains access to the computer, your passwords are safe. KeePass must be installed on every computer where you need it, though. Home computer, office computer, notebook computer. And what happens if you need to use a public computer? It's not going to be there. I have found LastPass to be an even better solution because it stores your passwords on a server, the server file is encrypted, and a duplicate file on your computer is encrypted, and all communications between your computer and the server are encrypted. When passwords are created or updated, they become available on all your computers immediately. Both KeePass and LastPass require that you create a single, strong password that gives you access to all your other passwords. This password must be strong. It must be unique. If you lose it, sorry, your passwords will no longer be accessible. And if somebody else obtains it, sorry again, all your passwords will be exposed. Create this master password carefully and protect it diligently. LastPass does offer other options for unlocking the file with your passwords, but most people seem to choose the familiar process of just creating a master password. Once you've installed LastPass, you can turn off the process by which browsers store passwords. Browser-based password storage is far less secure than it needs to be, and it should be turned off. Although my preferred application is LastPass because I use a lot of computers, KeePass is also an excellent free open-source application that provides a secure way to store your passwords. You won't go wrong with either one, and that's why I have links to both LastPass and KeePass on the TechBiter Worldwide website. If you're in business, you already know that you need a domain name, even if you choose, for whatever reason, not to have a website. A follow-up message from joe.house at aol.com will raise questions in the receiver's mind about eh, just how large the real estate business is and just how serious the sender is about being in business. But a message from joe.house at bigrealestate.com sends a much more professional message. But should individuals consider creating a domain name too? My answer to that is yes. And a side note here, the domain name Big Real Estate, well, it exists. But it's not associated with any realty company. It's just an example that I pulled out of thin air, and I would recommend that you don't go there. In addition to TechBiter.com, I also own Blinn.com and have for many years. During those years, I have changed internet service providers a few times, but my email address has remained the same. While it's true you can maintain the same email address with Yahoo.com or Outlook.com or AOL.com, creating your own unique domain and address isn't difficult or expensive. If you're in business, it's really not an option. It's a necessity. Perception is reality. I can't tell you who said that, but I can tell you that it's true. If you believe that I'm an idiot, well, then I'm an idiot. 
We all see the world through our own filters. If people perceive you as being serious about being in business, then you are, even if you really aren't. And if they perceive you as just playing around, then that's all you're doing, even if you're dead serious about your business. So that's why a domain name is essential for business. It's simply another clue. Being your own domain has several advantages, and perception is just one of them. For individuals, I think it's helpful, too. When I tell somebody that my address is william.blinn at blinn.com, there's no question that they'll remember it better than if I say it's williamblinn1437 at gmail.com. So, how expensive is all this stuff? Well, registering a domain name costs about 10 bucks a year for common top-level domains, the com, org, biz, and info domains. Certain other top-level domains do cost considerably more. A hosting account that includes space for a website and email, usually with an unlimited number of addresses, can cost as little as $40 a year. And you can find email-only accounts for $20 a year if you don't need a website. There's no shortage of domain registrars. You'll find links to several of them on the TechBiter Worldwide website, godaddy.com, register.com, networksolutions.com, or just choose from any of the hundreds of ICANN-registered registrars. And when it comes to hosting, well, my favorite is Bluehost for about 100 bucks a year. But there are other good hosting services. GoDaddy does hosting. OneOne.com is a big one. Vario.com. Or just do a Google search and you'll find hundreds, maybe thousands of hosting services. But beware, you'll find some offers that seem to be too good to be true. And they probably are. Uh, let's put this together. So, have you turned 64 yet? 64-bit computing has been available since about 2001, and it's continuing to catch on, but slowly. If you're in the market for a computer this year or next, now might be a good time to consider 64-bit hardware and a 64-bit operating system. Less than 1% of Windows XP users installed the 64-bit version of XP. Only 11% of Vista users installed the 64-bit version of Vista, and oddly enough, that was the only one that really worked. Windows 7 broke through the clutter, though, and about two years ago, half of all Windows 7 users had moved to 64-bit systems. That number will probably rise with the advent of Windows 8. I mean, after all, look at the software. What's out there currently has really exceeded the limits of 32-bit computing. Some Adobe products are no longer even available for 32-bit systems, and the trend is clear for any application that requires either a lot of memory, or a lot of processing power. Whether you need this power at home depends on how you use the computer and what you use it for. If you're already planning to buy a new computer, then moving to a 64-bit system will cost about the same as buying a new 32-bit system, and it'll provide options for expansion that 32-bit systems cannot. Memory is limited to 4 gigabytes on 32-bit systems, and although that sounds like a lot, you might benefit from 6 or 8 gigabytes, and consumer-grade computers are available with that much memory. 
The trend of hardware and software manufacturers to support 64-bit systems is clear, and the cost of supporting both 32- and 64-bit systems is prohibitive. So the future is clearly betting on 64-bit systems. In more or less plain English, the difference between 32-bit systems and 64-bit systems is the data path. Imagine a freeway that has 32 lanes. Well, that would carry a lot of traffic. But now consider a double-decker freeway, each with 32 lanes. In a 64-bit computer, the processors can handle data that's 64 bits wide. Besides faster processing, which is the result of the more traffic concept, another huge advantage of 64-bit processing is the ability to address more memory. 32-bit systems are limited to about 4 gigabytes of RAM, and that includes any memory used by the video subsystem. 64-bit systems can address 2 to the 64th power of RAM. 2 to the 64th power. On paper, that number looks small, but it works out to be 16 exabytes. That is 16,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,
moving the voter to another machine, noting the tally difference on a paper that stays with the voting machine, and then taking the machine out of service. We did all those things, and then we notified the Board of Elections. A technician arrived a short time later and fixed the machine, and we restored it to service, but later another voter reported a similar problem. After moving that voter to a new machine, we took the problem machine out of service once again, and it stayed out of service for the remainder of the election. Various other minor problems were reported around the country, including one in Massachusetts that involved a spider that had taken up residence in one of the machines. The most serious problems were the ones that occurred in areas where the machines don't have a paper audit trail, and even those seem to have been relatively minor. Still, this seems to be a good time for me to climb up on my soapbox and once again proclaim that the best system of electronic vote counting would involve paper ballots and scanners. A system like that can always be audited later because a clear paper record exists for every vote. Even though a paper-based system would cost far less, particularly when coupled with voting by mail, and would be more secure, I don't expect anything to change anytime soon because, well, because the people who make voting machines have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. And let's face it, they have the lobbying power to maintain it. It's time to upgrade some hardware at TechBiter Worldwide in advance of installing Windows 8 on the primary desktop computer. Two of the most astonishing things I've seen in the review of options with Marshall Thompson at TCR Computers are the prices of disk drives and the prices of memory. Three years ago, I migrated to a 64-bit system, which meant that I could install more than 4 gigabytes of RAM in the computer. I installed 8 gigabytes, even though I knew that 16 would have provided better service. This time around, it's going to be 32 gigabytes of RAM in conjunction with a solid-state drive for the operating system, and two new 2-terabyte drives for storage. Let's face it, video files, photos, and audio files take up a lot of space. Solid-state drives are still pricey, but they can speed the system startup substantially. And because Windows will install applications on the boot drive by default, all applications should start faster, too. When combined with Windows 8 and Office 2013, the startup process should be significantly improved. But two 2-terabyte drives and 32 gigabytes of RAM? Anything within reason that can be done to make the computer perform tasks better or faster is worth it. Within reason, you know what I said. And the cost of making computers faster drops every year. Maybe you remember when handheld calculators cost $400. Then they dropped to $100. That's about the point where I bought one. And, and then they dropped to $10. And now you can buy them for a buck from companies that provide cheap trinkets. The same thing has happened to disk drives. That $1,600 16-megabyte disk drive that I bought a very long time ago has been supplanted by two terabyte drives that can be purchased for not a lot more than $100. The same is true of RAM. 
instead of hundreds of dollars for 128 kilobytes of RAM, you can buy 32 gigabytes for around $150. All right, all right, all right, all right. Sounds good. Uh, let's put this together. This week, a federal judge booted Apple's patent abuse lawsuit against Google's Motorola Mobility Unit out of court. Apple has been trying to beat back the attack of the Android devices, and this is a setback for Apple's attempt to eliminate rivals from the smartphone marketplace. Trial was scheduled to get underway on Monday in Madison, Wisconsin, with Apple contending that Motorola's licensing practices were unfair. Google acquired a portfolio of patents when it purchased Motorola's cell phone business in May for more than $12 billion. Before the trial could start, Judge Barbara Crabb, who had earlier questioned whether she could rule on Apple's case, dismissed the case. Apple has traveled the world filing suits against Google and anybody who's worked with Google, Samsung, for example, because Samsung uses the Android operating system for its phones, in the suit that was just dismissed, Apple claimed that Google's royalties were too high. But, even though it brought the suit, Apple said that it would not be bound by Judge Crabb's decision if she set the rate higher than $1 per Apple iPhone. So Apple's apparent policy is this. Well, we want to sue the other guys, but if we don't agree with the court, we'll just ignore the verdict. Yeah. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.